Go ahead and find your way back to your seat. Grab a worship guide. We're going to be reading uh, Hebrews 10 together. So this is the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the, uh, places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great, high, uh, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we say... Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So good morning, everyone. Uh, we love missions and we love ministry moments. We call it the window to the world because now we all have a window that we didn't know was there. And so that was very, very good. Okay, so there is something about a crowd. All right, so you can just kind of look in a room like this. Uh, this would be considered a crowd, but there's something about a crowd that makes everyone take notice because we're more than just a few. We're more than just a family unit because groups of people can become powerful. If you've ever seen a throng of people moving down the, the street or a big crowd of stadium, there are powerful people and they really can make a difference because a group of people within the group of people can become a, a movement and that movement can become a force. A force. So um, uh, I had just come to faith. I'd been uh, walking with Jesus for about 10 months, 11 months. It was my sophomore year of college and I found myself in Washington, D.C. Um, there we were in the late 90s and there was this men's conference that was called Promise Keepers. I don't know if you remember way back then in the dark ages, right, the late 90s. Uh, there's uh, this thing called a Promise Keepers where people were, where men were challenged to live out biblical principles. Well, this challenge was that uh, they would try to get a million men to come and stand in the mall in D.C. You know the mall, the, um, the, from the Capitol all the way to the Washington Monument. Um, you've seen some of the pictures of even... Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. This is, this is where we're at. And we didn't quite hit a million. There was about 600, some say maybe even 800,000 men come. So anyway, it was a whole day of, of just making promises as unto the Lord. I don't remember a thing about the day. I don't remember anything that any speaker did. However, I do remember the moment that we got stuck in a subway. Because we literally shut down Washington, D.C. There was 800,000 extra people in Washington, D.C. that day. And when we found ourselves, we were in the subway system and the subway system could only take so many people at a time. And so we were just there. We were stuck. We were not moving. Minutes turned into more than an hour. And if you understand crowds, crowds can get pretty agitated, pretty frustrated, right? A little antsy, a little claustrophobic, those kinds of things. However, this is not the case of that day. You see, down in the bottom of D.C., they're waiting for a subway. The thing I do remember was this crowd turned into worshipers. Somebody, some dude, some old guy somewhere started to sing an old hymn. 
I recognized the hymn, even though I didn't know the lyrics. And there we were, upon thousands upon thousands, underneath the city, singing these old hymns as unto the Lord. And that's the power of crowds. Crowds can do something that individuals can't. You see, in that moment, you can't film that. Even though you may have been able to pull out an iPhone, you still aren't able to capture exactly what that is. You can't stream it because it kind of loses its like authenticity inside the pixels. And you certainly can't relive it. You see, you have to be bodily present in this place for it to truly make a difference in our life. And so that is the power of the church gathered. We are all the church, right? We are all a part of the church. And we scatter and then we regather. But there is something wonderful. We would even say supernatural that happens when we gather together here. There is something that is forceful, that is a movement, that is a powerful. We gather in a crowd. And so the main idea is that uh, we just kind of, we just show up every seven days. It's kind of like little ants in a trail. We just kind of find our way back here. But we want to know why. Why did you get here this morning? We know how, probably by car, right? But why did you gather? We're going to push all this semester to actually say that God wants you to make, a, make this gathering, this idea of church, a priority in your life. We think that God wants this from, from you. In the same way that he desi- designed oxygen to go in your lungs, in the same way that gravity keeps our feet to the ground, in the same way he created a gathering an assembly for us. Do you remember the terms, right? The word for church inside the New Testament is called ecclesia. Everyone say ecclesia. Oh, there you go. You know, a little bit of Greek, right? Okay, so that's the Greek word for church, right? And so the definition, there's both a secular and a a Christian definition, but they all mean about the same thing. So 111 times in the New Testament, you see this word ecclesia. Strong's number 1557. In the secular side, it's that a gathering of citizens who are called out, who literally leave their homes and they walk toward the city center. They walk toward the town hall or something like this. And it's called the assembly, right? So this idea of gathering. Now in the Christian context, the first century New Testament writers used this term, ecclesia, to say a group of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. So this is what we know of what it means. So this semester, there's going to be kind of three movements to this play, right? All throughout the semester, we're going to learn about what this gathering is or why we gather. First and foremost, the first phase is that we're going to understand that we are shaped by the word, right? And so that's why we gather is because we need the, wa- the word to wash over us so that we can be shaped by the word. But then we need to understand that as we're shaped by the word, we corporately, we become, we become a brand new society. So we're shaped in order to be formed into, into something new, into something new. And in, the, in how we just experience the ministry moment, we know that we gather here for a purpose, is to leave those doors, to scatter once again, to be salt and light, to be on mission to a dying world. So those are the three kind of movements of the semester. So this is still kind of introductory this morning. So why do we gather? Today we're going to be just talking about attendance. 
All right, we're not expecting perfect attendance, right? Don't worry. There will be no certificate at the end of the semester where we will, be, we will not be uh, push, uh, passing out perfect attendance. Don't worry. So this morning is about attendance. However, right, we need to understand, right, that this passage right here in Hebrews 10 is the most famous passage when it comes to church attendance. Lots of pastors and theologians like to go to Hebrews 10 because it says, do not neglect to meet together as in the habit of son, some. So the author of Hebrews is going, tisk tisk. There are some of you who are in a habit of not assembling. So you need to rethink these ideas. So he gives us a Bible verse to think through this because there is a danger, right? There is a danger out there if we do not gather. There is a danger out there. There are threats out there if we have forsaken those things, All right? For the overly religious out there, you read a verse like this and you're like, I've only gone 19 out of 20, um, 20 weeks. Does the Lord still love me? Right? So that's the overly religious where you're always worried. It's like, have I failed you, Lord? Then there are some that are the mavericks out there. We're like, hey, once a year is fine with me, right? God still loves me. So there's two spectrums here. We're again, no judgment here. We're just trying to give us all biblical ideas on why we gather. We believe that the church is more than a Sunday gathering, right? Let's just say that up front, right? However, the Sunday gathering, right, truly matters. So we're more than just a Sunday people. And yet Sundays actually become a little bit of a rallying point for all of us. You will all go home, right, and have a potential of talking about, hmm, that Honduran trip looked cool. Or, oh, I wonder what it would be like to go abroad or something like that. And that was started here. This passage wants to give us the confidence that what we have in Jesus, truly what we have in Jesus is all is that matters. So why do we gather, right? My job is not to coerce you into just trying to be in attendance over and over, but truly to understand why biblically. Speaking of attendance, I have to admit, I've already cried once this morning and it was not over the text. It was because there's someone in attendance that will not be in attendance next week. My firstborn, there's Kennedy. She's going, to, she's going to college. Whoa, I was not expecting that. So she's in attendance, but she will not be. There are good reasons not to be in attendance. Some of you travel, some of you go off to college. Honey, we are gonna miss you. All right, so, but why should we take Hebrews 10 and look at the full context and say, this is why we should gather because you will see plural nouns all throughout the full context. Let us do something. Let us do other things. Let us do these things. We should do some things together that we cannot do by ourselves. So let's jump into start. Uh, uh, the first let us, let us draw near, right? Let us draw near, says, uh, says um, the Hebrew passage. Let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil uh, conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is what we're gonna do. We don't know exactly who the author of Hebrews is. However, we know that he loves two things. One, he loves the gospel more than anything. 
He loves to preach the gospel. He, needs, he loves to tell us how Jesus has fulfilled all things in Christ Jesus. So in chapters one through nine, all you see is how Jesus has fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. So we know that he's a good preacher because he's always pointing us to Jesus. But then starting in chapter 10, we know he's a great pastor because then he walks into some application. He really wants us to do some things. So starting in chapter 10, it's called the ought chapter, what we ought to do. So very pastorally and very application and practically heavy, this is what we ought to do. And here we have one of those things that we should consider is let us draw near. Let us draw near is one of those things. This is what we ought to do. So what is, that, what is the motivation for all of this action? Is it just because we're supposed to? Is it because we feel guilty if we don't? Well, in chapters one through nine, and even the beginning in chapter 10, we understand what our motivation is. Our motivation is out of the obedience of Jesus. He has fulfilled all things. Even in chapter 10, we see that he is the sacrifice once and for all. What Jesus has done perfectly, we then stand on his shoulders. And so how do we draw near, right? By understanding what Jesus has done and what has Jesus done. He has given us access to the Father. This is what he's done primarily is to bring us into a relationship with the father. That's why he said, let us draw near. You were once apart. You were once far from one another. So what is the primary thing that Jesus does is to bring you into relationship with him. And he does this bodily, right? So how in the world are we going to get to the father? How are you and I going to gather in an assembly, right, with the Father? The answer is only through Jesus. So you and I, right, we will wither in our relationship without this understanding that Jesus is the one who has brought us near. It's so very graphic, this passage. How are we able to be brought near? There's this idea of a curtain, the curtain that separated the holy, holy place and the holy of holies. This curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom. And for the first time, right, the holiest of holy places are then exposed to the rest of the temple. In our passage, it says how we gain access to the Father is that Jesus' body was ripped and so in communion, where we see his body given and his blood spilled, we see the only way you and I have access to the Father is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And so why do we act like we're far from him? Why do we continue to act as if there is distance between us when Jesus has told us, no, proximity matters. Proximity with others, but it first starts with your proximity with God and God alone. And that's why there's, we cannot agree with Lone Ranger Christians who can only do it by themselves and are always kind of just doing their own things, but we have to call us back to this plural pronoun to let us do these things together because God knows we will wither without a relationship with God. We will wither without a relationship with others. So let us draw near. The second let us 
in the passage is let us hold fast, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful. And so there's some repetition here. So we're kind of getting some momentum here. So in our faith tradition, sometimes it's known as a confession of faith. This idea of the things that we hold on to, the things that we agree with, the things that we align with. This is what we would call a confession. In the early days, right, even the earliest Christians, we would come together and say, oh, this is how we align with ourselves. So for instance, just a, a couple of easy ones that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Confessional wise, we call that the exclusivity of Christ. So what is the exclusivity of Christ? It means that Jesus is the only way unto salvation. What we find in our statement of faith, right, is this idea that we believe in the exclusivity of Christ. And if you don't believe that, then we were no longer aligned, right? We're now separated. So we need to understand that, that uh, understanding. The other one is what we say on Sunday mornings is what we call the authority of Scripture. We believe that the Word, right, God's Word has an authority over our lives, and so we should obey it. Jesus goes so far to say, teach them to obey all that I commanded you and we go yes sir the only way we could do that is if the word has an authority over us if you think that the bible is just a book it's a good book it's just a book and it doesn't have authority then we would find ourselves not not aligned does that make sense and so just this idea that it has been a tradition that churches right local gatherings would find ourselves aligned in certain tenets of the faith Early in the, the history of the church, we find these, these confessions. All the drip to all throughout the New Testament, there are these creedal moments where we would see and understand maybe the movement of the local church where the, they were trying to align themselves. Colossians 1 comes to mind in which we hear Paul say to the, uh, to the church of Colossae that Jesus is the preeminent one. And he says, all things are held together in Christ Jesus. And so what Paul is telling the church in Colossae is that you need to be together in this idea. And so what is the Christian hope, right? Is it only in our own devices? Is it only in our own great thoughts and intellect? Unfortunately for people who are outside of a faith or even outside of a structure, they only can lean on themselves and only lean on their own devices, their own imagination, their own creativity. Yet part of why we gather is to find ourselves underneath the same thing and to say that is where my hope is found. When a sailor is lost at sea, whether he's lost or whether there's a massive, um, a massive storm, he throws an anchor down. Hebrews 6 would tell us that the anchor of our soul, the anchor of our faith is Jesus and Jesus alone. All the way back in the first century, we found this at a tomb in the shape of an anchor because in the earliest of days, one of the symbols of the early church is this idea of an anchor, this idea of something that would hold us fast to truly understand where we are going fully and completely. And so why do you and I gather one of the reasons why we gather is because you and I are one breath away from believing wrong doctrine. 
We are one day away from being tossed to and fro away from something that the, that the scriptures no longer believes. We are one season away of truly losing our faith and we don't know it until sometimes it's too late. And so one reason we gather is a covering because each and every week we will remind ourselves, we will remind each other that we truly need to hold on to this. We need to gather for these reasons and these reasons alone. All right, and then two, uh, where, where we're going is this idea of let us not forsake. This is kind of the third let us, and this is kind of the reason for this because it has to do with actually showing up actually finding yourself in a seat, finding yourself, you know, at least dressed up and coming through a door. So why in the world have you been here this morning? Why would you even show up? Biblically, we need to say that there is a command in the scripture that we are trying to obey. And it's found in Hebrews 10. The early church, the writer of the Hebrews tells us obviously that, the, that they, were, they were forsaking in some way, right? Let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good deeds, not neglecting the meeting of others. It's the context is that maybe they had just stopped. Maybe there was some habit out there. Sometimes uh, in the scripture, it tells us that it was out of fear of being ostracized. Maybe we've lost property. We don't know exactly why they've stopped gathering, but they've stopped. Well, the same thing today. Maybe it's not because we're losing property or ostracized, but there is a habit that is formed in your own heart or maybe even rhythm of your family in which it is just not that important anymore. The word forsake is a strong word. It means abandon. It means to be absent. And some people had grown into a habit of forsaking or abandoning or being absent in the gathering. There's a regular, regular rhythm in our calendar, right? Every Sunday, Sunday hits every seven days. And for 2,000 years, the church has gathered on a Sunday, and yet some of us have grown too silent. And so why do we do that, though? Why do you show up on a Sunday? This passage gives you a little ammunition to kind of set your alarm clock on Sunday morning. Is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. A lot of people in modern day church culture show up to church to gain something. And that's fine. You're gonna gain a lot. However, there is a motivation in this passage in which you are to give something. That whether you like it or not, if you find yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a way for you to stir up someone else toward love and good deeds this morning. Between 10 and 11.30, it's possible. Get here a little earlier, leave a little late, whatever it is, but there's a way with your actions or your words or your prayers or your motivation, right? Being sensitive to the Spirit, you are able to do that. So biblically speaking, why did you wake up this morning and show up here what we're trying to do is form a new society, form a new people who wake up not just because we're supposed to or because mom told us to, but instead to have other ammunition in our back pocket. And part of that is to stir one another. Now, this is a powerful word in the scriptures. It's similar to provoke, right? Or to rouse something, a sudden compulsion. Usually it's negative, right? Usually it's with a sharp disagreement, 
to, to stir or to spur, right? It's, some, it's, usually, it's always powerful, but it's usually negative. But here the writer in Hebrews uses it positively. I want you to be provocative. I want it to be, uh, I want you to rouse, and I want there to be a com- compelling toward someone else's love and good deeds. And so this passage suddenly turns this action positive. That you and I, there's an engine inside of us in order to be able to stir or to spur or to, be, to push in toward that. An opportunity is at hand. And the opportunity is that you and I have the capabilities to give someone something. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the sensitivity of the Spirit, and the power of the gospel, you're able to give something to others. It's more than a worship band serving on a Sunday morning. It's more than a pastor preaching. It's the body of Jesus Christ stirring up one another toward love and good deeds. And that's why we have on, in our discipleship model, we have the very first leg, this idea that we think that worship matters. We think your private worship matters, and we think that your public worship matters. And if we're going to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus, and we want to obey all of the commands of Jesus, we have to understand that first and foremost, it starts with the worship of King Jesus each and every Sunday. So there's a rule of life out there, this idea that like, how am I going to navigate this world? What am I going to do? Like, if I'm going to eat healthy, then, you know, you're going to have to make that rule of life. Or if I'm going to start every day without my screens, then you're going to have to make some kind of rule of life. Our question to you today is, like, what is your rule of life concerning the gathering? Because for 2,000 years, starting in Acts 2, the church of Jesus has been gathering on Sundays. Acts 20 tells us that they were gathered together on a Sunday. Revelation, John, the apostle says that on the Lord's day, we were there, so there was something special. We would say even unique and supernatural about when we gather together. So this rule of life is, if you were to categorize, right? Uh, um, I don't know what that word was supposed to be, but I don't think that fulling is it. I I don't know. So somebody else interpret my, my typing, my typo. Fulfilling, probably. What'd you say? Yeah, something. Yeah, uh, you categorize fulfilling the passage in Hebrews 10 with a percentage of time partaking in something. What would that percentage be? So is there a rule of life? Is there a something, some kind of parameters that you've put on you and your family when it comes to the gathering of people? The only time, right, that, that um, like, Deep fried Oreos look good is when you are gluten free or when you're trying to go on a diet, right? And so there's a rule of life that exposes our hearts. The only time that we really love to wake up and grab our phones and get on social media is when we've made an attempt to like, let's start our day differently. The only way you're going to have your heart truly exposed is when you and your family maybe talk over dinner tonight and ask what should be a rule of life concerning the gathering of God's people. And so you have neglected, you have forsaken as in the habit of some. So why do we gather? We gather 
on Sunday mornings to practice what we will be doing in all eternity. One of my favorite passages is Revelation, 20, uh, Revelation 5. So what will we be doing for all of eternity? This is just kind of practice. This is just kind of a run through. This is a rehearsal. And they sang to them a new song saying, worthy, is, worthy are you to take the scroll. And worthy are you who are able to open the seals. For you are slain and by your blood, you ransomed a people for God. For every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on earth. So then I looked around and I heard there was a throne, uh, there was a throne and th there were living creatures and there were elders with the voice of, of many angels numbering myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands singing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is what we will be doing for all eternity. This is just a rehearsal for that day. And so there's a subway system that is clogged with people. It just happens not to be in Washington, D.C. It happens to be on Carroll Creek Road. Welcome to worship service. Where we get to honor and bring glory and might to his name and his name alone. Let's pray. So King Jesus, we want you to be worshiped this morning. We want you to be magnified. And we know in our heart of hearts that we can do it better together than even by ourselves. So Lord, I pray that you are convicting our hearts, that you are sharing with us our, that just, the, just the insights and the inclinations of our own hearts to drift away from the gathering. We pray and we pray forgiveness and we want the boldness to repent that maybe just the mockery of today's world of recreation or lounging or a day off, that that has had more weight on our decisions than even obeying the commands of Jesus. Will you convict us now, Lord, to have a rule of life concerning the Lord's day? We believe that this is a grace of yours that there is something supernatural that happens each and every week when we gather together to lift up your name. We know that we are encouraging. We know that we're able to encourage one another until you reappear. So as we come to the table again, as we partake from this, the symbol of your, bread, your, your body and of your blood, as we take it in our hands, Lord, help us to be reminded once and for all, that God, our faith is in you, not in ourselves. Help us to spend every waking hour giving you the glory that you deserve. How much more so when we come together and we lift up our voices. And it's in your name we pray, amen.